Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin, high above the Rideau River at Carleton University, where once again we've assembled for the next edition of our Intrepid podcast. Now, this is an episode on national security law and a particular issue in national security law, so we're actually suspending our ongoing conversation, which is part of Her Majesty and Right of Pod. That'll be back next week. With we're going to alternate. We're going to alternate. We're going to alternate. Yes. Yeah, there's only so much crown action we can all take. I mean, we really want to space that out because it's <laughs> Every, just... Everything good comes in periodic bunches. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it's, it's, I, it's, I've never had to caffeinate so much before a podcast. <laughs> Let's just say that. But actually, it, was, it took quite a bit to uh, keep you and uh, Phil in line. <laughs> Some discipline there. Cattle prod. Right, exactly. So... Yo, what are we talking about today, Stephanie? Right, we are talking about whistleblowers. <gasps> and, you know, normally we don't talk about what's happening in the United States because, uh, you know, there's so many different great podcasts that are already out there, the National Security Law Podcast, all the lawfare stuff, and they've been all over this. But we were thinking, wouldn't it be cool to kind of talk about uh, whistleblowers in the Canadian context? Because there have been some um, serious cases and then some rather strange cases <laughs> that have kind of built up the law. So if you're sitting on some illegal activity, this podcast is for you. Yeah, well, and so I have to start with the caveat that uh, we began this season with that uh, my role here is to uh, explain the law, not to comment on its merits. And so this would be a, a version of the material that I've written on this issue. And, and it's been a while that since I wrote on whistleblowing law generically, but um, also in the national security law context, I've done a little writing on this and it would be the sort of subject matter that I would deal with in my class. So I'm going to st stick to the facts in the, in the dragnet sense. Uh, right, and I'll come up with the crazy ideas. The law in this case. Sure. <laughs> so what we thought we would do is, is, is maybe just to contextualize the legal architecture that applies in this area, but then to avoid dwelling on, on issues that might be in the public eye, to revert to our, our hypothetical scenarios. And so we've come up with uh, our usual patented very realistic, intrepid podcast list of characters. Uh, I mean, you must have so much fun writing exams, Craig. I can't even. <laughs> it's an acquired skill. Imagine. <laughs> Uh, so, so we're gonna we're gonna circle back and, and, and walk through four different scenarios in, in terms of how the law might apply to them. Right. So I guess the first step, Stephanie, is really to talk about what we mean by whistleblowing. Yes. So it's I, not the actual like I can't whistle. <laughs> like I can't. I, I would love to be able to do that, but I've never had that skill. Picked up on the mic. I'm gonna try. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's Bad a, that's a click is the sound of everyone turning off their podcast. <laughs> All right, so so when I say whistleblowing um, in a colloquial sense, what do you think of? I think of someone who has discovered something and is trying to bring forward corruption to light or something illegal to light. That's what I think of. Right. So are uh, you going to tell uh, me why I'm wrong now? No, not at all. Oh, sweet. Because first of all, the concept of whistleblowing is not per se a legal expression. Okay. Uh, the, but the concept is captured in, in several uh, aspects of our law, and, but you, you capture the essence of it. It's an unauthorized disclosure of information in the possession, typically of a government official. And so the issue is whether that unauthorized disclosure should justify some sort of retaliation in the form of workplace consequences or uh, even dismissal of that employee for the unauthorized disclosure. And, and I would divide the disclosure, by the way, into two categories. I'll call it internal disclosure. 
Uh, and so disclosure that's not technically authorized internally to, to usually a more senior person within the, the government hierarchy. And then there's, of course, the most famous uh, instance of, of disclosure that most people think of when they think about whistleblowing. That is unauthorized disclosure to the broader public, often through the media. Right. And so... So you think of, like, Deep Throat, the 1970s, with the Watergate... I guess it wasn't really a, a, a whistleblower because he stayed hidden. Is that still a whistleblower? Uh, well, again, so... Is that semantics? So, so, well, because, again... This is not, not legalities. Right. So the, you know, so how you compare those factual circumstances against the requirements of the law, it requires you to line up exactly what these things are defined as in the law. And, and I'm not actually going to comment on the American law because I have sort of a passing understanding of how it works, but I'm a little bit behind it listening to our our uh, equivalent podcast in the U.S., the National Security Law Podcast. Uh, Trying to understand how anything works in the U.S. <laughs> right now is a challenge. Right. So, so but fair. We're, but we're going to come up with factional scenarios that more or less echo what's going on in the U.S. and, and ask the question, well, how would it play out here under our law? So, so just to step back then and talk a little bit about the law. So there, one of my favorite cases, because the facts are so interesting, is this case called Frazier. It's from the Supreme Court. It was actually a public sector employment law case, as are all of these initial cases in the area of whistleblowing, because it's about a, a public servant who went out and said things, and they were then disciplined under workplace rules, in this case, Frazier, to the point of being dismissed as a public servant. At issue was public statements that Mr. Frazier made. And so this was in the, the actual statement state from, what, the late 1970s. And at that time, Mr. Frazier... So he was, he, he was disclosing something? Well, not so much disclosing. Oh, he was okay. comment. So this was a question of public commentary. And so okay. he was very upset with the metric system, which was then being introduced, as well as opposing the introduction of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So he was anti, anti-kilometer. A, 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 right. He was anti-metric system. And, and so he was quite animated in his criticism to the point that it was vitriolic, in, in the words of the Supreme court you know that's a hill to die on <laughs> it is wow a hill to die on. you have to pick something <laughs> <laughs> so so he was making all these public statements and his supervisor uh, told him you know back off don't make these public statements and he kept at it got more vitriolic uh, eventually there's workplace discipline and then ultimately a dismissal and so he sued through the employment system which was an administrative law proceeding through the relevant tribunal and said that he was wrongfully disciplined and dismissed uh, because he had this is all pre-charter but he had a free expression entitlement the tension here has always been what we'll call the duty of loyalty and then the concomitant concern about free expression. So every government employee is a matter of common law, employment law owes a duty of loyalty to their employer. And I'm not an employment lawyer, but th this is sort of like basic employment law. And so in the federal civil service context, you owe a duty of loyalty to the government. And that duty of loyalty requires you to you know, obviously meet the standards of employment and also essentially not to undermine your employer through a public statements. So is, is loyalty defined in law? Not, not so, well, there are indicia of loyalty, right? So hold that thought because the, you know, we'll talk about the outer reach of loyalty. Because yeah, we often hear, you know, I've had guests come in to my classroom and say what the civil service is about is offering fearless advice, but loyal implementation. Right. Uh, now, there are outer limits, and we'll come to that in a second. So in Mr. Fraser's case, with his preoccupation with the metric system and the implementation of the charter, in terms of the countervail, uh, there there was not a compelling circumstance in that case where his duty of loyalty should somehow be curbed because the issues he was talking about weren't sufficiently important to justify his ability to go out and make these very vitriolic comments. I mean, this is not just... His comments, as I understand this, the facts... Was he, case, like, working at the math department or something? Uh, he, I think he was in Revenue Canada at the time. Okay. So the Supreme Court, though, along the way said, look, we appreciate that there is a free speech issue engaged here. And this is under the common law, remember? This is pre-charter. 
And so they said, generally speaking, an employee, a public servant, must not engage in sustained and highly visible attacks on major government policies. But this restriction is not absolute. They went on to say, a public servant may speak out without impairing the duty of loyalty if the government engaged in illegal acts or if its policies jeopardize the life, health, or safety of the public servant or others, or if the public servant's criticisms had no impact on his or her ability to perform effectively the duties of a public servant or on the public perception of that ability. Right, And so those became sort of the kernels around which then our legal regime on whistleblowing really grew. So this, this Fraser case dates from 1985. After 1985, what happens? Well, by 1985, by the time that the case is actually decided, we had the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which includes Section 2, free expression rights. And so the free expression then became a constitutionalization of uh, free speech uh, expectations, which quite reasonably had a knock-on effect in, in terms of how we construe this duty of loyalty. And so you had a number of cases from the federal court into the 2000s in which you had circumstances where, especially they were actually health-related. So uh, the two most famous cases involved two doctors who were working for Health Canada, so uh, Hayden and Chopra, who made disclosures that related to medical uh, issues. Um, and, they, and right, and they're saying this isn't being handled properly, or the government right. isn't paying attention, and people are going to get hurt. Effectively, that was their view. And so the issue was, did they violate their duty of loyalty in making these public disclosures? And the court, by that time, the federal court had to both look at Fraser, but also contemplate the implications of the charter, and essentially arrived at a very similar standard, that there was this concept of duty of loyalty, but it wasn't absolute. It had to be read in light of Section 2 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and there was this outer limit, and they emulated Fraser in, in terms of understanding what that outer limit might look like. And so in some instances, in terms of these uh, disclosures, the outer limit uh, that requirement was met, that, that it really was a matter of, of, of public health and safety. And in other instances, the limit was not met in part because the whistleblower, to use the colloquial term, had not gone through internal processes of raising these concerns before going right to the public and, and actually, in one case, right to the Globe and Mail. And so, so, so in some cases, so, so basically the law stipulates you have to try internally first. And so the jurisprudence develops in the federal court that there has to be, you have to make best efforts internally, essentially. Okay. And they, they talk about that, that in the context of what we would call a section one justification, that it was appropriate to superimpose internal, internal disclosure requirements before you ran to the public. And that was a reasonable constraint on your free expression under section two. Right. So, so, so before you run to the Globe and Mail, you want to make sure you have exhausted all internal disclosure options. Yeah, right, that's a good way of putting it. So in, in, exhaust your internal disclosure obligations. And that actually fueled then the development in the early 2000s of, uh, I believe it was a Treasury Board policy, I may be wrong on that, but sort of an, a disclosure policy that was superseded in, in 2005 by a new statute, which had the effect of codifying all these standards. And that statute is called the Public Servants Disclosure Protection Act. Right. And so that act came in place in 2005, was amended in 2010. And basically it sets up both a, uh, a standard for wrongfulness and then a protocol for disclosing that wrongful activity, which puts a premium on disclosure internally uh, before you get to the point where it's appropriate to make an external disclosure. And along the way, there's the prospect of disclosing to a special new office, a new officer of parliament 
who uh, will serve the purpose of receiving these complaints. And so that new officer uh, could ingest them. And then there was the prospect of a consideration uh, of the issues raised by that officer who was arm's length from the rest of government. And so, you know, one of the concerns is an internal disclosure system. Well, what if you're trying to report against your supervisor? Where do you go? Uh, do you, you know, and if you're at the top of the chain, where do you go from there? And so you wanted to have someone who's outside of that chain of command to which you could make a disclosure. And there are rules about how you're supposed to do this. Now, right, because in the U.S., well, like you said, we don't want to use the U.S. context too much, but one of the things we keep seeing is, like, this references to the inspector generals. Uh, and it's interesting because, uh, you know, CSIS used to have an inspector general. It doesn't now. Um, so it'll be interesting. Um, you know, I, I think the idea, though, is that there's internal procedures and processes that are supposed to be able to do this. Right. And, and, and they, the interesting thing, we'll get to this in a second, is actually the system we're talking about now might have applied to Mr. Frazier, but it wouldn't have applied in the scenario you just described, which involved an employee of a security service and specifically CSE and CSIS and the armed forces because they were exempted from this act. They were excluded from the definition of public sector. So we'll get we'll get to that in a second because there's a slightly se separate and, and interesting a, a okay. different regime. But just to complete the thought here on the Public Servants Disclosure Protection Act, so there, at the very end of the pipe, there's the prospect of going public, right? And so it's actually Section 16 for those who are following along and have pulled up the act, and that's going to be all you know. Who, who isn't following uh, so, along? Uh, the actual provision is Section 16, and it says, a disclosure that a public servant may make under the internal disclosure protocols may be made to the public if there is not sufficient time to make the disclosure under these sections, and the public servant believes on reasonable grounds that the subject matter of the disclosure is an act or omission that constitutes a serious offense under uh, an act of the parliament or legislature or constitutes an imminent risk of substantial and specific danger to the life, health, and safety of persons or to the environment. Right, so that's, and that, that mirrors the, the court's language. Right, so you can see that, right? Yeah. You, can, you can see how there's an echo all the way through this jurisprudence. I am paying attention. Now, now just one other thing, that this, this act really is relating to disclosure of wrongdoings, and wrongdoings is actually defined, right? So again, as you might expect from the provision I just read to you, it includes, wrongdoing includes a contravention of, of an act, a misuse of public funds, gross mismanagement in the public sector, an omission or act that creates a substantial and specific danger to life, health, or safety, or to the environment, a serious breach of the code of conduct, and so this would be the public servant's code of conduct, knowingly directing or counseling a person to do any of those things, right? So that's, so wrongdoing that triggers the application of this series of protocols on internal and external disclosure is tied to this defined concept of wrongdoing. So I'm curious about number C, which is gross mismanagement in mm -hmm. the public sector, because, you know, I know a lot of civil servants who would argue that, Maybe their management could be better. Um, so right. do we know what gross mismanagement well, means? Well, good question. I don't. Or is that, is that a term it, of it, art it as may, well? It may actually have been... Uh, so the officer who uh, implements this uh, this act, so that officer of parliament, which I just mentioned, that person uh, may have uh, issued uh, some sort of a series of interpretive guidelines. I just don't know what they are because I haven't looked at this stuff in a long time. The But note that the serious mismanagement part is not amongst those justifications for... Uh, making a disclosure to the public that sort of circumvents the internal disclosure protocols. Right. right. And okay. so the, the going public requires a level of gravity that basically you're talking about illegal acts or acts that jeopardize a person's health or safety. Uh, and so, you know, it's a very... But wrongdoing, so wrongdoing is actually lower in than going right, public. You, tr you can trigger the internal disclosure mechanism at a lower threshold, but if you're going to circumvent that internal disclosure, there are very limited circumstances where you can do that. Is that good? Well, I mean, I think it's consistent with where the court went in in terms of the 
the sort of the Fraser jurisprudence and then the jurisprudence under Section Two, because it, it really did hinge on the gravity of the circumstances, right? So, the in the it was the Hayden case in what two thousand three or so. The federal court said, look, this going to public to the Globe Mail in these circumstances where you hadn't followed the internal protocol uh, was not uh, an exercise, an appropriate exercise of your constitutional right to free expression because what's at issue wasn't sufficiently dire. In other words, it wasn't immediate enough, it wasn't exigent enough. And so th there's that sense from the federal court jurisprudence that if you're going to go public and circumvent the internal disclosure obligation, it really does mean that it's a dire uh, circumstance. And that's captured, I think, in this section 16. I think this act does really line up with where the jurisprudence was at the time uh, when it was enacted. Now, you wanted to talk a little bit about how it might work differently for the security intelligence community, right? So the difference is that there's a definition of public sector. So this is disclosure of wrongdoings in the public sector. And if you look at the definition of public sector in the act, uh, the exclusion of uh, entities in the public sector include uh, CSIS, CSE, and the Canadian I Armed just Forces. Saw, yeah, and I just saw a special section here for the RCMP. Is that right? Yeah, so the RCMP has got, uh, the, the, a lot of this act really is, is related to how it would work for the RCMP. It, it's a bit complex, and I, I don't pretend to be able to explain this off the top of my sure, head. Sure, yeah. But in, in just in terms of the exclusion, though, so there is the public sector is defined to exclude the most notable entities we talk about in this podcast. So Canadian Armed Forces, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and the Communications Security Establishment. So they're not actually governed by this statute. Now, as a matter of public record, and I'm talking about public record here, right, so this is entirely stuff that you can find if you were to Google it, as a matter of public record. This is disclaimer number three. Right, right. So as a matter of public record, in about 2011 or so, they, that the agencies had an internal policy on this. So not governed by the Act, but they have an internal policy. And I have no knowledge about the content of that internal policy. So I'm not going to talk about it. But what's... Uh, uh, really interesting, I think, for our purposes here, uh, and, and this is where we'll start going to the hypothetical, is uh, as, as you know, because you guys did a, a podcast a couple weeks ago on the Security of Information Act. Yeah. And so the Security of Information Act, as you described on that podcast, there are two offenses that are tied to uh, disclosures of what's known as special operational information. Right. Which is actually what Mr. Ortiz was charged with. So special operational information, which is, if you look at the definition, the Security of Information Act is basically means, methods, techniques, and sources. I mean, there's a little bit more language around that, but that's what it boils down to. If you look at section 13 and 14, there are crimes when a person permanently bound by secrecy, and that would include the members of the intelligence services, which is described, and also, you know, the review bodies for that matter. When persons disclose special operational information and are permanently bound by secrecy, there are crimes associated with that. And so one crime is if you confirm or communicate in circumstances where that information were to exist was the special operational information, you can go to jail for five years. So that's when you not, neither wish to confirm nor deny there was special operational information. And if uh, if the government's prepared to concede that it was special operational information, you can go to jail for 14 years. So, so it's a pretty significant set of rules. Mm. Now, there is, however, a defense. There's a public interest defense, and it's all set out in the Security of Information Act. And the public interest defense is tied to these questions of gravity, right? And so if the, uh, the judge is persuaded that, there's a, a, that the person acted in public interest, that's a defense that uh, then effectively justifies or exonerates what would otherwise be a violations of, of the sec Section 13, Section 14. And so what does it mean to act in the public interest? The person acts for the purpose of disclosing an offense under an act that she reasonably believes has been or is about to be committed by another person in the purported performance of that person's duties and functions for the government of Canada. And, right, now this is, there's an and here, right, so these things have to be read together. 
the public interest in the disclosure outweighs the public interest in non-disclosure. So it's a balancing exercise. Right. That's not that's not really clear guidelines. No, well, no, not really. Because, of course, it, a defense, it, the onus is on you to prove it as a defense. So the burden is on the defendant to prove a defense, generally speaking. And so you're going to have to prove these things, which as best I know have never actually been applied in a court context in Canada. Now, there are a list of factors, though, that a court is supposed to take into account in, in doing this judgment. And so amongst the factors... Whether the disclosure was more than what is reasonably necessary to al- to disclose the alleged offense, did you really know to say this much or could you have said something less? The seriousness of the alleged offense, whether the person resorted to other reasonably accessible alternatives, i.e. going through the internal process, whether the person had reasonable grounds to believe that the disclosure would be in the public interest, et cetera, et cetera, right? Or in the extent of the harm or risk created by the disclosure uh, and so there's this list of considerations to, that, that amp up, if you will, that sort of open-ended uh, concept uh, that you said was a bit vague. Um, now, th- the other thing, too, a court is supposed to decide whether the public interest in disclosure outweighs the public interest in non-disclosure uh, if the person has complied with the following. And so amongst other things, they're supposed to go up their chain of command and d- disclose first internally to their supervisor, or if not reasonably practical in terms of disclosure to the supervisor, to the AG, the Attorney General of Canada, and if the person's not received a timely response from the deputy head or the deputy attorney general of Canada, has to bring their concerns to the review body. And so, Nizira now. And so, those are also considerations that guide the application of this public interest test. The one out in this, and this really is tied, I think, to the Section 2 jurisprudence, this requirement in terms of going up this chain of command does not apply in circumstances where the communication or confirmation of the information was necessary to avoid grievous bodily harm or death. Okay. So again, there's sort of a, like an exemption for the most serious circumstances. So but and nevertheless, this is, it's clear that a Canadian law stacks against a whistleblower, mm. I think. Like yeah. there's, there's like, I mean, the fact that you have to go through internal, well, if you're not in the security intelligence community, you have to go through your internal processes, in which case your superiors are going to know that this is something that you're concerned with, even if they're the ones doing the act. If you're in the security intelligence uh, community, there are policies. We don't really know what those are, but they have to go through those first. And again, so your bosses are going to know if you are, unless there's some kind of independent person. Um, And so it's, it's, and and then if you go to court, you have to actually demonstrate that this was... If you're charged, yeah. 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 No, there's a, there's a series of deterrents, absolutely. I mean, the other thing too, of course, so under the Public Servants Disclosure Protection Act, there are actually protections against retaliation. So workplace retaliation, which... But there's many ways to retaliate. Well, that's it, right? And so technically there's a policing process by the, this independent officer created by the act. And there's a prospect of going to a tribunal where you have to adjudicate that, a special tribunal. But the reality, of course, is there's various ways things can happen to you. Don't get promoted. And and you don't know the source. And so you're left to sort of second guess that. The reality with whistleblowing, and so this this is more the sociology or the psychology of whistleblowing, is that, look, it's, uh, you watch those movies about whistleblowers and there's always, there's always sort of an idiosyncratic aspect about their character. It's very unusual for a person because there's a whole host of social pressures to comply. And so the reality is, and you use the term stacked, yeah, there's a lot of hoops to jump through and there's a lot of uncertainty there. And and it could be concern about your employment prospects, your security clearance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so it's comparatively rare, right? Whistleblowing. Now, 
the issue in the United States has been, well, you know, how is how is this working and is it in this unusual environment which we see in the U.S.? That's very generous of you, Craig. Yeah, right. <laughs> so are there stresses and strains now in terms of the actual implementation of rules that are roughly equivalent to what we have in this highly sort of toxic partisan environment uh, tied in part about some of the, the role of the Congress in terms of actual oversight, which is a little bit different than our system, um, in terms of information flow from, in, in that case, the Inspector General for National Intelligence through to Congress. I don't pretend to know much about the mechanics of that. Uh, so it, the, the system is under stress because of the unusual nature in the U.S. in, in a way that I think is, is quite different from what otherwise might be the case. But nevertheless, to be a whistleblower is an extremely unusual act for most people who, for pure pressure reasons and others, might be expected not to, to do that. Right. So should we want to throw a hypothetical? I, you know what? I, I love uh, Intrepid Podcast story time. <laughs> so uh, we've come up with a story here. No, when you say we... <laughs> When you say we, it was not we. All right. <laughs> so, so everyone's seen the cartoon Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer from, right. you know, the, whatever, the 1950s. The whatever. classic Rankin-Bass. Right. I, I mean, I don't, it's not, for me, it's it's actually not the holidays until you've actually watched it. <laughs> and, you know, it's already October, so surely we should be doing Christmas themes already. Hey, I, in Costco, they were <laughs> celebrating in August, so it's right. fair. So the scenario we've come up with, and, and you remember from the show, Stephanie, that there was this island of misfit toys? I, I, I how, how could you forget? There's a whole song <laughs> about it. <laughs> so we're going to invent a department of the government of Canada called the Agency of Misfit Toys, because we don't want to impugn. The AMT. The AMT. We don't right. want to. <laughs> In our hypothetical, we don't want to impugn uh, any department, real or existing. Right. So the agency of to protect the names of the innocent. Right. Right. And so the agency of of misfit toys is is headed by a deputy head level person called Boss Elf. Boss Elf. He's right. the one who does not want. Herbie to become a dentist. Right, that's Hermie's. Right. The, Hermie's the, Hermie, the, yes. the workplace, the workplace elf, and, yes. and yeah, he wants to be a dentist. And Boss Elf's not happy about that, right? So and already so, Boss Elf doesn't like him because so he's not making toys <laughs> that great. Exactly, he just wants to put teeth on everything. <laughs> so so Hermie, Hermie's our whistleblower. <laughs> oh my god! Like so okay. so Hermie, Hermie, and Hermie. We'll talk about Hermie in three different situations. So, okay. So let's stipulate at the outset for our first hypothetical that we've got. The Agency of Misfit Toys, which is just a regular agency of the government of Canada, it's 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 governed by the Public Servants Disclosure Protection Act, and Hermie is just a regular. Right, it's like Departments servant. of Fisheries and Oceans, except it's Misfit Toys. Right, Misfit Toys. Like like trains with square right. wheels. So Hermie sees or hears Boss Elf uh, in this Agency of Misfit Toys. Uh, let's come up with a scenario here that involves Bob from Mordor because we haven't had Bob. So he's he's planning. Well, there's yeah. Bob from Mordor. Yeah, but so maybe so, maybe it's Bob's cousin, which is the Bumble. Yeah. So <laughs> so, so uh, Boss Elf is on the phone telling Bob from Mordor to engage in some nefarious and illegal practice, and so Her- Hermie hears that. Right. And so what can Hermie do? Well, so under the Public Servants Disclosure Protection Act, which applies in this case. The question is whether Hermes heard anything that constitutes wrongdoing. So in this case, we'll, we'll stipulate that, that what's being planned is illegal. So how's this? Okay. So basically, Hermie hears Boss Elf encouraging Bob from Mordor to work with the Bumble. They're obviously cousins. <laughs> to basically infiltrate King Moonracer's operations. Okay, I have no idea what that's about, but that sounds good. That How sounds, can you not? It's the sounds... king, and he's got wings, and he's a lion. It's just like a whole okay. thing. Well, th- is that illegal? Can we stipulate there's some... That's stat- illegal. Okay, that's Yeah, illegal. that would be illegal. So whatever that is, is illegal, all right? So it falls within the definition of wrongdoing, which you recall is the gatekeeper for our Public Servants Disclosure Protection Act. And so then the question is, what can Hermie the Elf do in terms of 
revealing that or an unauthorized disclosure, keeping in mind that he's got this duty of loyalty, right? But the duty of loyalty, of course, is to the government writ large, not to boss elf. Right. Right. And so uh, there will be, as there are supposed to be, internal protocols within our Department of Misfit Toys, but they're so terrible, right? Because it is, in fact, after all, the agency of Misfit Toys. And so we're resorting to the Act. And so the, the Act says that the disclosure must go to the supervisor or to the senior officer designated for that purpose uh, in this particular agency. But, of course, the supervisor in this case is Boss Alf, and the designated officer for this purpose, say, is Boss Alf, because this is a terrible department. And so we move down the train here, and so there's the prospect of disclosure to this officer who's called the Public Sector Integrity Commissioner, right, this officer I mentioned before. And so that then can... And this applies to all the government... Yes, so this this would be all your, the, so your, this your would be the Department sector, of Fisheries and Oceans, right. as well as the Agency for Mif- right, Toys. Right. right. Okay. So makes sense. They are obliged in making this disclosure not to provide more information than is reasonably necessary, and they should follow the procedures and practices for the secure handling, storage, transportation, and transmission of information. But you know, this isn't classified. This is something that Herney heard. He heard, right? right? Yeah. So it's like he said, like, look, I heard Boss Elf talk or scheming with uh, actors to infiltrate King Moon Racer's operations sure, in his kingdom. Right, yeah. Okay. And so, so no, but so so that's not that's not classified information. No. He's not revealing anything about sure. the department's operations. He's just talking about a general kind of wrongdoing. All right. So the question then becomes as to whether Hermie the Elf can circumvent this internal disclosure process, in this case, to the Public Sector Integrity Commissioner. Now, remember that threshold. That threshold was actually pretty significant. Constitutes a serious offense under the Act of Parliament or constitutes an imminent risk of substantial and specific danger to life, health, and safety of persons where there's not sufficient time to go through the internal process. So I think we'd have to change our facts and and probably make them even more dire. You're showing me a picture of King Moonraiser, who is, in fact, a lion with with wings. wings. I told you. Uh, So we'd have to come up with something even more dramatic to get up to that threshold. But the bottom line is that threshold would be available in the direst of circumstances, right? Right. Okay, so that's scenario number one. And, and Stephanie, just to complete the thought, the commissioner then has competency to investigate the matter. And we won't get into that because it's a bit complex, but you know, there's a, an investigative process. Okay. All right. So we move to the second scenario then? I can't wait. All right. So second scenario, uh, same department of Misfit Toys. Again, it's just a regular public sector department. And Herney- The agency of Misfit Toys. The agency of Misfit Toys. It's I'm, the I'm AMT. Sorry. Yeah. The Craig. AMT. <laughs> and, and so this time, Herney, though, is a person permanently bound by secrecy. Um, and so let's- Let's assume that in this case, the disclosure at issue is, in fact, something that would resemble uh, special operational information. Right. And so... Uh, King Moose Racer's operations. Yeah. So, or there's there's some aspect of the conversation between Boss Elf that itself discloses special operational information and to uh, actually report on the unlawfulness. Herney has to actually get into the weeds on some of that, right? So, and he, has to, he would have to make that information public. Or would have or to, just acknowledge it exists, or disclose it to the uh, the commissioner here, the public sector integrity commissioner, right? Okay. But the bottom line is, as a person permanently bound by secrecy under the Security of Information Act, you don't even get in the gate there because the act precludes its application to special operational information. Right. So, so but this is less. So this is less than working for a security intelligence agency. This is actually just if you, say, worked at Global Affairs or if you worked at... um, So you were designated as a person permanently bound by secrecy. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So basically the Act, the Public Servants Disclosure Protection Act, says that these disclosure rules, which we just talked about, do not apply in respect to any information that is special operational information within the meaning of the Security of Information Act. Okay. So the Public Servants Disclosure Protection Act is not available. 
Right. And so the question then becomes... Is there a policy? Well, there should be a policy. There should be an internal policy. But in the absence of this act, what's the protocol in this case? And I have to say that the fallback is always going to be the Section 2 charter entitlement. So there has to, as a charter matter, be the prospect of disclosing in the circumstances that we've been talking about that are so grave where it justifies disclosure under this jurisprudence under Section 2 and Fraser before it. And that was freedom, the free speech... Yeah, so free expression under yeah. Section 2. Uh, but And we know that the jurisprudence also says you're supposed to follow internal processes and 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 so you c- capture the essence of this act, but this act does not apply to special operational information. And so it, it, technically it would seem then that the fallback position would be, look, if you're ultimately charged under the Security of Information Act, Herney the Elf, then you would have to resort to Section 15, which was that public interest defense that we talked about. And you'd have to show that the public interest in disclosure outweighed the public interest in non-disclosure, including if you went to the Public Interest Integrity Commissioner, who's technically not empowered to receive uh, this Classified information, information, right, right, yeah. Uh, So it's actually, you know, again, it's a disclosure of special operational information. Um, And so here, there's a, a, in my view anyway, I I am not sure how it works. So there appears to maybe to be a gap there. Could, could be. Now that you would think that it's all filled with, with internal protocols, uh, either Treasury Board or departmental. And I just can't tell you what those are because it's not something I've researched recently. Okay. And then the third variation is that let's assume that the, uh, and it's a, a relatively similar uh, dilemma, and let's assume that we're talking about the agency of misfit toys, which in fact has the same legal status as CSIS and CSE and is excluded from the public sector under the definition here right. of the public sector for the Public Servants Disclosure Protection Act. There, even if we went back to the first scenario and what Herney heard was not actually special operational information, but as something more banal, it's just, you know, some regular effort to engage in... Just some grift. Right. Some grift, So something the boss elf is doing that's not actually involving special operational information. And so Herney is not covered by that exclusion on special operational information. Like a sexual harassment? Like maybe he's sexually harassing the girl elf. Sure. So again, we'll make it a legal conduct that's like criminal under the... So something that involves bribery or an an effort to elicit a bribe or something like that. Bottom line though, even though it doesn't engage special operational information, because our agency of misfit toys is excluded from the definition of public sector in, right, in now, the act. Because we're now it's considering still not governed it. by the act. So uh, we're still left yeah. with that scenario where, like, what do you do? And the fallback would always be your Section 2 entitlement and, and the standards that govern it. Um, now there would no, be no prospect of, of criminal prosecution for uh, Security of Information Act violations because we're not talking about special operational information. I guess the question would be, what if you were charged with breach of trust under the criminal code and how, how would that play out? And I don't know. But the bottom line is that for different reasons, the Public Servant Disclosure Protection Act would not apply. All right. So okay. those are our three scenarios that engage like the statutory regime. Right. Um, and you can see that, you know, there's some stuff that I certainly I haven't puzzled out. And, and that might just reflect the fact that I'm not in the weeds on some of the internal policies on this. Well, for those who are in the weeds, they can come back at us. <laughs> Uh, tell us what you, what you would advise little Hermie here. So what's interesting is in Canada, we have also had other, there, there's at least one more scenario that we can have here, which would be perhaps outside the act, which was the, uh, a couple of years ago, we had uh, Richard Colvin, who was a high ranking diplomat in Afghanistan from 2006 to 2007. He was not happy about the way uh, detainees were being treated by Canadian forces. And he said he was writing reports. He feels like there was a lot of pushback against him putting things that he felt were problematic in writing. But basically he was subpoenaed by the military police Compa- complaints commission 
during their investigation to the treatment of Afghan detainees, and he testified at the Special Committee on the Mission in Afghanistan. And he, you know, which is a, in Parliament. Which is in Parliament, yeah. yeah. So this is like a this is like a whole other scenario. Actually, I should I just want to give a shout out to our Intrepid Podcast intern Hannah Deagle, who did some uh, background research for me. He was often referred to as a whistleblower in the media. Right. He which said, is a colloquialism, right? Which is a colloquialism, but he uh, he said that. He says, quote, I am not a whistleblower. Rather, I am a loyal servant of the crown who did his job in Afghanistan to the best of his abilities, working through internal and authorized channels. And also, it's important to note that he was not actually the first to raise certain concerns about the way that detainees were being treated. So he actually testified. Um, so is this, how does this work? Hermie. Hermie's like, All right, so ends up in Her- parliament. Hermie, Hermie goes to parliament Hermie with the Rankin Bass <laughs> film that no one yeah. saw. <laughs> Hermie goes to parliament. Right. So now Hermie is in front of a parliamentary committee and is dis- is asked and answered, right? So asked, is asked a question that relates to something that requires a disclosure of information that is otherwise confidential. Perhaps it's classified, perhaps it's special operational information. Ultimately, doesn't really matter. So Hermie is in front of Parliament and is asked the question and decides to answer. Now, I mean, the debate here, I think, and it's a very, it's a difficult debate for public servants is, look, so the powers of a committee, a parliamentary committee enjoys what are known as parliamentary privileges. And parliamentary privileges include the capacity to compel the presence of witnesses and papers and effectively to demand a subject to the prospect of being held in contempt answers from those who appear in front of parliament. It's interesting because we hear a lot about that right now in the US, but we've never really heard that much about it in Canada. No, because it's vanishing. Well, there have been contempt proceedings in the last, say, 15 years. The contempt proceedings, by the way, are usually extremely damaging to reputation. They don't necessarily result in incarceration, as would, say, contempt in front of a court. But the parliament, in principle, has the capacity to actually imprison someone for contempt for at least the duration of that session of parliament. So we that, need to get that, filled. That's, a where, t- that's where prorogations <laughs> would, be, would be really important for whoever is detained for purposes of contempt uh, uh, proceeding in front of parliament. I want I want Phil Lagasse to talk about parliament jail. Yeah, parliament jail. <laughs> so there is no practice. I'm I'm pretty sure it's never happened in Canada. And in the UK, I think you'd have to go back several hundred years. But the bottom line is that technically parliament. Because of these parliamentary privileges, it can extract whatever it wishes. Uh, and so as a public servant, generally speaking, you would just decline to answer. So this would, a lawyer, for example, asked to disclose something that's solicitor-client privilege would say, I'm sorry, I can't talk about that. Generally speaking, a parliamentary committee would say, accept that, right, and not press the issue. Although they don't have access, they traditionally never had cl- access to classified well, information. So that came up in the Afghan detainee context, right? Right. So there was this big dispute as to whether, for example, information that was governed by the Security of Information Act, that was somehow precluded from disclosure to parliamentarians. And parliamentarians took the view that uh, as part of their inherent privileges, they were competent to see whatever, regardless of its status under a statutory provision, regardless of how it was classified under Treasury Board guidelines, etc. So the issue went to the speaker and the speaker had to make a speaker's ruling in the house of commons and the speaker's ruling was artful in the sense they said the speaker said look the parliament the commons can in fact extract this but as a matter of prudence it's probably not such a great thing to extract it in an open venue and have it distributed widely because there's bona fide concerns policy concerns right so this is not just arbitrarily classified information and so the in the wake of that the there was a, a special committee constituted that, that involved one or more former uh, Supreme Court judges who would vet the incoming information from the government and then decide what should go forward to the parliamentary committee. And so it was a prudent sort of halfway house. 
that was a compromise. That process fell apart after the 2011 election and resulted in a conservative majority. And as you may know, that the issue of Afghan detainees sort of fell off the agenda. But the bottom line is that the established rule, if you will, was that Parliament has the competency to extract this information. More than that, that the parliamentary privilege also immunizes both parliamentarians and those who are participating in parliamentary committees from any criminal culpability for what they say as part of those proceedings. It's untouchable. And so that means that you could uh, make these statements that might actually be special operational information and you couldn't be prosecuted under the Security of Information Act because what you're saying in that venue is clothed with parliamentary privilege, which is a constitutional expectation and would not be usurped by whatever's in the special uh, operational information provisions in the Security of Information Act. And, and so just as a, an aside, that's one of the reasons why the National Security Committee of Parliamentarians in their act mm -hmm. excludes the application of parliamentary privilege to what it is that the NZCOP does. And so the parliamentarians who sit on the NZCOP are not clothed with parliamentary privilege in relation to what they do for NZCOP. And there's actually a lawsuit over that right now. Oh, is there? Yes. Uh, so there's a, a law professor in Ontario who's, who's challenged the constitutionality of that provision, was denied standing in the lower court, and the Ontario Court of Appeal recently concluded that it was appropriate to consider his standing, and so the issue is whether that's going to go ahead on the merits in the Ontario courts. Anyway, so that's an aside to an aside. Right. Like, I was going to ask about, because now I think a lot of these issues would have been solved if there had been a National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians at the time who could have taken this up. Right. Yeah. But and, and so, and to a large extent, it's, I don't want to say it's moot because this could definitely happen again but it, it's interesting to see how we, we we've evolved in in that sense but the nsi cop has basically has it right nsi cop nsi cop well, that's been a whole <laughs> other episode of just how's that pronounced but, but coming back to the whistleblowing thing so if our Hermie the elf got in front of parliament and revealed spilled a bean uh, of whatever sort right and there are immunized the, from, from the very the prestigious misfit toys Committee. Right. Right. It's a <laughs> parliamentary it's a committee, not committee. a committee of parliamentarians. Right. A standing committee right. uh, on misfit toys. <laughs> it's all coming together. Right. So <laughs> so in that circumstance, Herney couldn't be prosecuted for what he said. He's, he's clothed in, in sort of a derivative parliamentary uh, privilege, or uh, in this case, immunity from prosecution. Now, that's different from the kind of architecture we would find under the Public Servants Disclosure Act, which includes rules on non-retaliation, etc. It's difficult to see how that would play out under a parliamentary lens. Uh, but uh, the bottom line is that there are basically these different categories, these different buckets of disclosure in different contexts, which then are governed by slightly different rules depending on who the person is and what sort of disclosure they're making. To me, this is as clear as mud. This is a really <laughs> difficult issue, actually. Yeah. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. Well, you kind of wonder under under pressure how the system would work, right? And so if you had a Again, I mentioned at the outset that the American system is under considerable strain because of the unusual political environment, right? So there's a lot of kind of question marks. When I write this up, there's a lot of parts where I, I kind of put a question mark and, and raise the question in my various textbooks where I've, I've talked about this and said, look, I'm not entirely sure how this would play out. Uh, and that might just be the limitations of my, my own sort of ability to work through this. Um, or it may reflect circumstances where there are gaps. I, I don't really know. But um, certainly I have questions. I just want to point out, please don't use this podcast as legal advice. <laughs> <laughs> Under any circuit, no one, no one uses this as legal <laughs> advice. Especially since I am not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that's pretty much as much as we can do on this uh, in terms of just walking through how this would work, again, inspired by events in the United States. Again, I mean, it's a very interesting area. It is, and um, a one where you have to wonder with the, kind of the Trudeau government's emphasis on transparency. We don't know what's going to happen in a couple of weeks, but you know, if if that those initiatives continue, would we eventually see something to reform this area? Who knows? 
I doubt it. Okay. <laughs> I will not comment. Right. Uh, okay. So uh, thanks very much, everyone. And that ends this podcast. And we're back next week, if I recall our calendar, with Philippe Lagasse for the second episode of Her Majesty in Right of Pod. And we're talking about how all that stuff we talked about in the first episode came to Canada. Right. And I could just hear the enthusiasm in your voice. I just wish we could do it in part of our Heritage Minute videos, because <laughs> that would be so much better. All right. But, thanks you know, very much, everyone. See you next time. Bye-bye.